and welcome back to another episode of Becoming No One. I'm your host, Big Taj, and today we're going to talk about stanza two. I'm back, friends. Sorry, last week I had to take a little intermission just because we're halfway through the season, and I just wanted to get organized because uh, me and my brother are going to Spain, and I had to catch up on some episodes, so I appreciate y'all. I love y'all deep. And I really thought that we would be able to start stanza three in this episode, but I really took my time and went into deep detail because I remember the book advised that the second stanza would kind of be hard for us to differentiate from the first. So um, it's going to require some intuition here. I'll try to interpret it the best that I can from my level of consciousness, but it would benefit everybody to try to use your own discernment based off of what we learned so far. And then next week we'll start stanza three, which will probably be about a two part episode. Okay. So I'm gonna go ahead and jump into stanza one, um, section one, and we'll go from there. So stanza two, section one says, where were the builders, the luminous sons of the men of enteric Don in the unknown darkness in their ahi, meaning the Kohanic and the Dayani Buddhic, Piranishpana, the producers of form, Rupa, from no form, Arupa, the root of the world, the Devamatari, and the Svathatvat, rest in the bliss of non-being. So the secret doctrine breaks this down into two parts. The first part is part A, and it says, the builders, the son of the men of enteric Don, are the real creators of the universe. And in this doctrine, which deals only with our planetary system, they, as the architects of the latter, are also called the watchers of the seven spheres, which exoterically are the seven planets, and esoterically the seven earths or spheres of our chain also. The open sentence of stanza one, when mentioning seven eternities, is made to apply both to the Mahakalpa or the great age of Brahma, as well as the solar solar prela and subsequent resurrection of our planetary system on the higher plane. There are many kinds of praleya, which is just the dissolution of things um, from the visible, as we will show elsewhere. So part A is just pointing out that there are beings usually referred to as the planetary spirits or the builders who are responsible for the creation of our planets and universe. They're also responsible for like organizing things and putting things into form. And these builders come from a class called the Cosmocrators. And they are invisible but intelligent beings, and they put things together based on the divine and cosmic ideation. Now, the cosmic ideation is just the consciousness that we're meant to explore. So they're considered to be the gods and the rulers of Earth and typically rule planets in cosmic matter opposed to individual spiritual beings, if that makes sense. So in our solar system, they are also referred to as the watchers and they rule over the seven spheres. This to me means that there are seven different consciousness levels that earth has to go through in its evolutionary chain. And um, right now we're just now entering this fourth round as of 2012, but these beings have like a hierarchy between them. And based on which level of consciousness we're at, that'll tell us which being is basically putting together and forming everything in that density of consciousness. But in addition to there being multiple planetary spirits based on the level of consciousness of Earth, they also have a hierarchy structure in between planets. So they're going to vary based on planets as well. For example, Jupiter would have a higher rank in planetary spirit than Earth because the planetary builder has to act and reflect the universal consciousness or plan made for that planet. So remember we talked about how planets have different variables to explore. Well, Earth is at the lowest vibration, so our planetary spirit must align with that. And this text refers to them as well as the sons of the men of enteric Don. Um, and they not only rule the physical manifestation of Earth in its evolutionary cycles, but it also rules the spiritual versions as well. Now, part B says Paranishpana, which is the absolute, hence the same as Paranirvana. 
um, besides being the final state, it is that condition of subjectivity, which has no relation to anything but the absolute truth, which we call Paramartha Satya on its plane. So it is that state which leads one to appreciate correctly the full meaning of non-being, which as explained is absolute being. Sooner or later, all the now seemingly exist will be in the reality and actually in the state of Paranishpana. But there is a great difference between consciousness and unconscious beings. Um, so the condition of Paranishpana without Paramartha, the self-analyzing consciousness, is no bliss, but simply existence for seven eternities. Thus, an iron ball placed under the scorching ray of the sun will get heated through, but will not feel or appreciate the warmth while a man will. It is only with the mind clear and undarkened by personality and in the simulation of the merit of manifold existences devoted to being in its collectivity, the whole living and sentient universe, that one gets rid of personal existence, merging into becoming one with the absolute and continuing in the full possession of Paramartha. <clears throat> now, basically what this means is it's referring to the state of Paranirvana, which again is when you release your lower ego or personality to live in this state of balance, okay, free from greed, hatred, and self-focus. And how this state of being gives you an appreciation for non-being or returning to the all is when you are in this state of Paranirvana, you are not plagued with the pain and suffering that we experience on this material plane, okay? So, this state of absolute truth without our self-analyzing consciousness doesn't bring us bliss because we don't get to appreciate being conscious and feeling and feelings help us to understand our experience and appreciate it on a new level. So this is saying that man can feel. So it's our goal to reach this state of releasing the lower ego while still having access to our feelings so that we can appreciate our reality. Okay. So part one of stanza two tells us that this was the state that the universe was in on day two, where you're still in the state of non-being because it didn't have like a personality or an ego. Like we didn't have that greed, hatred, self-focus. Um, so we didn't have that. You're still in the state of non-being. However, it's almost as if the universe was in meditation. It was still an observation. Okay. So my interpretation is that it was almost as if the universe was meditating. It is conscious and unconscious at the same time, observing, feeling, but not reacting, still in a state of balance, but very aware. So stanza two, part two says, where was silence? Where were the ears to sense it? No, there was neither silence nor sound, not save ceaseless eternal breath which is motion, which knows itself not. Now, part A from the secret doctrine says the idea that things can cease to exist and still be is a fundamental one in Eastern psychology. Under this apparent contradiction in terms, there rests a fact of nature to realize which in the mind, rather than argue about words, is the important thing. A familiar instance of a similar paradox is afforded by chemical combination. The question whether hydrogen and oxygen cease to exist when found again when the water is decomposed, they must be there all the while. Other contending that as they actually turn into something totally different, they must cease to exist as themselves for the time being. But neither side is able to form the faintest conception of the real condition of the thing, which is more real than their existence as gases. And it may faintly symbolize the condition of the universe when it goes to sleep or cease to be during the nights of Brahma to awaken or reappear again when the dawn of the new men of Intera recalls it to what we call existence. So basically what this is saying is that on the second day, the universe was in this state of non-being and being at the same time, which is hard to explain, but this girl on TikTok used an analogy, y'all, that I thought made so much sense. So what she was saying is like, 
everything the universe is like baking a cake you need eggs water oil frosting sugar right and when you combine those things together it's not that those things no longer exist but they are just at a different form so if you cut a slice of cake you still have egg water oil frosting and sugar all in that one place they're all still maintaining their individuality even though they're in a different form basically it's just saying that this state of non-being still exists while we're in the state of being okay because the state of non-being is absolute it's perfection is what we are always going to go back to but we are made of that we're made out of that so it still exists okay so part b says the breath of the one existence is used in its application only to the spiritual aspect of cosmogony by archaic esotericism otherwise it is replaced by its equivalent in the material plane which is motion so the one eternal element or element containing vehicle is space because space is dimensionless in every sense and is coexistent with which we are Endless duration, primordial, hence indestructible matter, and motion. So absolute perpetual motion, which is the breath of the one element, this breath as seen can never cease, not even during the prelaic eternities. But the breath of the one existence does not all the same apply to the one causeless cause or the all beingness in contradistinction to all being, which is Brahma or the universe. Now, Brahma or Hari, the four-faced God who after lifting the earth out of the waters, accomplished the creation, is held to be only the instrumental and not as clearly implied the ideal cause. No orientalist so far seems to have thoroughly comprehended the real sense of the verse in the Purana, treat of creation. Therein, Brahma is the cause of the potencies that are to be generated subsequently for the work of creation. When a translator says, and from him proceeds the potencies to be created after they had become the real cause, and from it proceeds the potencies that will create as they become the real cause on the material plane, would perhaps be more correct. Save that one, causeless, ideal cause, there is no other to which the universe can be referred. It's the worthiest of ascetics through its potency. Okay, so an example is through the potencies of that cause, every created thing comes by its inherent or proper nature. If in the Vedanta and Nyaya, Namita is the efficient cause as contrasted with a Padana, the material cause. Okay, so Pradhana implies the function of both. So in the esoteric philosophy, which reconciles all these systems and the nearest component of which is the Vedanta, as expounded by the Advaita Vedantist, none but the Upadana can be speculated upon that which is in the mind of the Vaishnavas as the ideal in contradistinction to the real or the Parabrahma in Ishvara can find no room in the published speculation since the ideal even in the misnomer which applies that to that of which no human reason even that of an adept can conceive and don't worry I'm gonna explain this all in just a second okay so it to know itself to oneself necessitates consciousness and perception both limited faculties in relation to any subject except parabrahma to be cognized hence the eternal breath which knows itself not infinity cannot comprehend finiteness the boundless can have no relationship to the bounded and the conditions in the occult teachings the unknown and the unknowable mover or the self-existing is the absolute divine essence and thus being absolute consciousness and absolute motion to the limited sense of those who describe the, this indescribable it is unconsciousness and immovableness 
Concrete consciousness cannot be predicated on abstract consciousness any more than the quality wet can be predicated on water. Wetness being its own attribute and the cause of the wet quality in other things. Now, consciousness implies limitations and qualifications, something to be conscious of and someone to be conscious of it. But absolute consciousness contains the cognizer, the thing cognized and the cognition, all three in itself and all three one. So no man is conscious of more than that portion of his knowledge that happens to have been recalled to his mind at any particular time. Yes, such is the poverty of language that we have no term to distinguish the knowable, not active, actively thought of from knowledge we are unable to recall as a memory. So to forget is synonymous with not to remember. How much greater much must be the difficulty of finding terms to describe and to distinguish between abstract metaphysical facts or differences. It must not be forgotten also that we given names to things according to the appearance they assume for ourselves. We call absolute consciousness unconsciousness because it seems to us that it is or must necessarily be so just as we call the absolute darkness because to our finite understanding it appears quite impenetrable yet we recognize fully that our perception of such things does not do them justice. We involuntarily distinguish in our minds, for instance, between unconscious absolute consciousness and unconsciousness by secretly endowing the former with some indefinite quality that corresponds on a higher plane than our thoughts can reach with what we know as consciousness in ourselves. But this is not any kind of consciousness that we can manage to distinguish from what appears to us as unconsciousness. So this part is just explaining what we've talked about a thousand times before. It's hard for us to understand this state of non-being because we are finite and we can't understand infinite things. However, what the universe would consider to be the great breath is equivalent to motion in the material plane. It's in everything that exists on this physical plane. In fact, you are not living or being if you are not in this state of motion, okay? So if you do not hold a frequency or vibration, if you're not creating a sound because vibrations create sound frequencies, right? So it is saying that there is no vibration in this state of non-being, but on the cosmic level, like motion in the physical plane, this great breath is everywhere in everything all at once. Although the two are not related because everything in the physical plane has limitations, restrictions, and bounds, um, which doesn't exist in this state of non-being, they are both in everything, everywhere, all at once, okay? So the great breath on this cosmic level and motion on the material level, they're in everything. So the limitations that we experience on this plane make it hard for us to name what we don't understand because we can only think from our level of awareness. So when the previous part was explaining that the universe had consciousness, it's not to be compared to our understanding of consciousness because our understanding has limitations because we're finite beings. But it is to... It is in this state of absolute consciousness, which is unknowable, which we can't conceive and is unmovable, meaning there is no vibration. Part one is just basically telling us that the universe is in this state of being and non-being at the same time where it's not able to feel as if man can feel, but it's still in kind of like this meditative state where it has it's, it's aware and conscious, but it's also unconscious at the same time. Whereas the second part is telling us that, again, we have a hard time perceiving what we cannot understand. So the only way to look at this great breath of life, right? Um, is to compare it to motion in this material plane. Okay. And if something is in this material plane, 
anything that exists in this material plane has motion, but it has its causes in a spiritual plane outside of this material plane. It also wants us to understand that darkness is not darkness, it's the absolute truth. And everything that is being right now is going to go back into this darkness or what we consider to be darkness. Um, but our understanding of darkness and consciousness is just different. But in this space, you know, because space is the only actual vehicle for this consciousness, we cannot conceive what it is. It's unknowable to us, but we also need to understand it's unmovable, meaning there is no vibration because vibration or motion is specific to this material plane, not the cosmos. Now, stanza two, part three says the hour has not yet struck. The ray had not yet flashed into the germ. The Matri Padma or Mother Lotus had not yet swollen. Now, part A of the secret doctrine says the ray of the ever darkness becomes as it is emitted a ray of effluent light or life and flashes into the germ. The point in the mundane egg represented by the matter in its abstract sense. But the term point must not be understood as applying to any particular point in space for a germ exists in the center of every atom and these collectively form the germ or rather as no atom can be made visible to our physical eye, the collectivity of these. So if the term can be applied, something which is boundless or infinite forms the noumenon of eternal and indestructible matter. So basically what this is saying is that the ray is an angle of light that flashes from the unmanifested logos, which is darkness. Logos, again, is just that love energy that we talked about. Remember um, when we talked about the higher self episode, we talked about how light is the physical manifestation of love or the logos energy. So it is the creative agency and only becomes active after the pralaya or seven eternities of non-being to start the manifestation process. Now, this had not yet happened on day two or during this phase of stanza two in the evolutionary process. The ray causes the water and the primordial matter to be differentiated from one another like a baby in its mother's womb. That had not happened yet because um, it says the mother lotus had not yet been swollen. So nothing is manifested yet in this second stage. Now, part B says one of the symbolical figures for the dual creative power of nature matter and force on the material plane is padma the water lily of india now the lotus is the product of heat fire and water vapor ether fires standing in every philosophical and religious system as a representation of the spirit of deity the active male generative principle and ether or the soul of matter the light of the fire for the passive female principle from which everything in the universe emanates now Hence, ether or water is the mother and fire is the father. Okay, that was from Sir W. Jones. And before him, archaic botany showed that the seed of the lotus contained, even before they germinated, a perfectly formed leaves, the miniature space of what one day as perfect plants they will become. So nature, thus giving us a specimen of the performation of its production. The seed of all plants bearing lotus flowers as a universal signal so this explains the sentence the mother had not yet swollen the form being usually sacrificed to the inner or root idea of archaic symbology now the lotus or the padma is moreover a very ancient and favorite simile for cosmos itself and also for men so the popular reasons given are firstly the fact that we just mentioned that the lotus seed contains within itself a perfect miniature version of it the future plant which typifies the fact that the spiritual prototypes of all things exist in the immaterial world before they, those things become materialized on earth secondly the fact that the lotus plant grows up through the water having its roots in the mud and spreading its flowers above in the air the lotus thus typifies the life of man and also that 
of the cosmos. For the secret doctrine teaches that the elements of both are the same and that both are developing in the same direction. So the the roots of the lotus sink into the mud represents the material life and the stalk passing through the water typifies existence in the astral world. And then the flower floating on the water and opening up to the sky uh, represents us being spiritual beings because we're the connection between those two things. So let me explain it a little bit further. So the second part just points out the symbolism of it all using a commonly used symbol, which is the Lotus. If you're amongst any spiritual people, you're going to see a Lotus somewhere, whether it's on the tarot deck, whether it's tattooed on a body, like a Lotus is going to be somewhere um, amongst the people. Okay. And Lotuses are a product of heat, fire and water, water vapor, or aether. Heat represents the masculine component coming together with the water, the feminine component, which is aether or water vapor that surrounds us to start the germination process, which is the creative process of the water lily that already contains itself or what it is destined to become inside the germ before it even starts to grow. Okay. Which is representative of the spiritual world and also us having everything that we need inside of ourselves before we even get here. Okay. So not only that, when it does start to grow, its roots dig deep into the mud underneath the water while the stalk sprouts out of the water, which is symbolic of everything that we have in this material world, right? The roots are us in this material world as physical beings. And then the stalk is supposed to represent us, you know, penetrating through to the astral world. And then the water lily sitting on top of the water is us. We're the medium between the two. So we understand that both matter and spirit are connected through us, the water lily. So stanza two, part four says, her heart had not yet opened for the one ray to enter. Hence, to fall as three into four in the lap of Maya. Now first understand that in the physical matter, in the physical plane, the number three is seen as masculine and four is feminine. Okay, so A of the secret doctrine says the primordial substance had not yet passed out of its pre-cosmic latency into differentiated objectivity or become the invisible protile of science but as the hour strikes and it becomes receptive of the phohotic impression of the divine thought which is the logos or the male aspect of the mina monday which is again the soul it hearts opens so it differentiates and the three father mother son are transformed into four herein lies the origin of double mystery of the trinity and the immaculated conception so the first and fundamental dogma of occultism is universal unity or homogeneity under three aspects. So this led to a possible conception of deity, which as an absolute unity must remain forever incomprehensible to infinite, I'm sorry, to finite intellects. If thou would have believed in the power which acts within the roots of a plant or imagine the root concealed under the soul, thou hast to think of its stalk or trunk and of its leaves and flower. Thou canst not imagine that power independently of these objects. Life can be known only by the tree of life. The idea of absolute unity would be broken entirely in our conception had we not something concrete before our eyes to contain that unity. And the deity being absolute must be omnipresent, hence not an atom, but contains it within itself. The roots, the trunk, and its many branches are three different objects, yet they are one tree. Says the Kabbalist, the deity is one because it is infinite. It is triple because it is ever manifesting. So this manifestation is triple in its aspect, which I just want to stop real quick and say, anytime you see the number three, um, you need to think, create, create, create. This is why three is representative of creative energy. So this manifestation is triple in its aspects for it requires, as Aristotle has it, three principles for every natural body to become objective. 
privation form and matter now privation meant in the mind of the great philosopher that which the occultist calls the prototype impressed in the astral light the lowest plane in the world of amina mundi which is your soul so the union of these three principles depends upon a fourth the life which radiates from the summits of the unreachable to become an universally diffused essence on the manifested pl manifested plane of existence and this quaternary father mother son as a unity and a quaternary as a living manifestation has been the means of leading to the very archaic idea of immaculate conception now finally crystallized into a dogma of the Christian church, which carnalized this metaphysical idea beyond any common sense for one has but to read the Kabbalah and study its numerical methods of interpretation to find the origin of that dogma. It is purely astronomical, mathematical, and preemptively metaphysical. So the male element in nature personified by the male deity or the Logi or Brahma, Horus, Osiris is born through not from an immaculate source personified by the mother because the male having a mother cannot have a father. So the abstract deity being sexless and not even a being, but beness or life itself. Let us render this in the mathematical language of the author of the source of measure, speaking of the measure of man and his numerical Kabbalic value. He writes that in Gen Genesis chapter four, volume one, it is called the man, even Jehovah measures, and this is obtained in a way, in this way, 113 times five equals 565, and the value of 565 can be placed under the form of expression, 56.5 times 10 equals 565. Now, keep in mind, this measure comes from the measure of men, okay? So it's using um, Kabbalistic, like, number measurements, okay? So man represents is represented by the number 113, which becomes a factor of 56.5 times 10. And the Kabbalistic reading of this last numbered expression is called Jod He Va He or Jehovah. So the expansion of the 565 into 56.5 times 10 is the proposed emanation of the male Jod from the female Eva principle or Hava. So to speak, the birth of the male element from an immaculate source, in other words, an immaculate conception, thus is repeated on earth, the mystery enacted according to the seers on the divine playing. So the son of the immaculate celestial version or the undifferentiated cosmoprotile matter in its infinitude is born again on earth as the son of the terrestrial Eve, our mother earth, and becomes humanity as a total past, present, and future for Jehovah or Jadhi Vahi is androgynous or both male and female. Above the sun is the whole cosmos, below he is mankind. So the triad or triangle becomes the tetractus, the sacred Pythagorean number, the perfect square, and the six face cube on earth. So the macro prospice, the great face, is now micro prospice, the lesser face, or as the Kabbalists have it, the ancient of days, descending on Adam Kadmon whom he uses as his vehicle to manifest through gets transformed into tetragrammaton. It is now in the lap of Maya, the great illusion in between itself and reality has the astral light, great deceiver of man's limited senses, unless knowledge from Paramarth Satya comes to the rescue. 
So Taja, what does this tell us? This is just explaining that the heart had not yet opened and there was no separation between the male and female principle. They were still one with each other in the three aspects, like a tree, its roots and its branches are visibly three separate things, but are part of one tree. So each holds its separate power, which makes the full creation. Then it goes on to explain where the idea of Adam and Eve came from, which was the numerical equation that represented the measure of man. So man numer numerically is 113. But you have to multiply it by its parts, which are the father, the divine thought, mother, nature, son, body, vehicle, unity, right? And then the living manifestation. So 113 times 5 equals 565, which becomes 56.5 times 10 when you separate them out, okay? So when you differentiate the male principle from the female principle. So this numerical expression broken into parts is Jod, He, Va, He, or Jehovah. Jah is the male principle and Hova, which translates to Hava or Eve, is the female principle. So Genesis chapter four, verse 26 says, then began man to call upon the name of the Lord. Lord replaces Yahweh, which is translated in Hebrew as Jehovah over 6,000 times in the Bible's translations. Okay. But it's mistranslated and it shouldn't have been. So then began men to call themselves by the name of Jehovah, which was just explaining that there was a sep separation of sexes at this level. Adam is the vehicle or masculine principle of our physical being and Eve or Hava is the earth nature, the feminine principle of our physical being. It's an allegory explaining that when the ray or angle of light is radiated towards the vehicle, it is androgynous or Jehovah. Meaning there is no sex, but when the body, Adam, is born to earth Eve, then we see a separation of sexes. So if we are to apply as above, so below, which is called the principle of correspondence, the sun or creation from the masculine pr principle directing its will towards the female principle to start the creation process. The above result is the cosmos or the creation of the universe. The below result is the creation of man. So this happens across both. Okay. So man is born into the lap of Maya or illusion and only through knowledge can the truth be revealed to them because he's man is basically sitting in between these two worlds, a false reality and actual reality. And the only way for us to understand what part is real is for us to get universal truth and universal knowledge. So when it says her heart was not yet open yet, to me, it means earth's heart was not open to receive the ray of light. Once her earth heart opens, then the three or masculine principle will fall into the four feminine principle, meaning that the separation will happen and fall into the lap of Maya. So it's talking about the falling consciousness into the realm of the plane of illusions, which is the material plane, which is earth. I did not mean for this to be a math lesson, but the reason why I'm giving y'all the numerical representations, because it explains where they get Jehovah from. And we can understand on a deeper level where the Christian dogma comes from, because again, when this was put together, this was so long ago. Think about how technologically and intellectually advanced we have been since the Bible was created, since it started being put on the market, right? And we have people back then trying to interpret this information. And it's hard for us to understand now in today's time. Imagine how hard it was for them to understand when they don't have nearly as much information as we have now. Okay. So it's really important for us to go back and see where this came from. What, why they 
did it the way that they did because if you think about it I mean the male principle the female principle they were trying to put it in stories and allegories to try to teach us the information but somebody took it literally somebody didn't fully understand these sacred teachings because they didn't have a teacher or an adept to walk them through it so they just did it based off of their consciousness level and what they could actually perceive and if we don't have a cause of something in our reality we draw a blank so they just created the causes so it's our job to go back and look at this stuff ourselves and unpack it now stanza two part five says the seven sons were not born from the web of light darkness alone was mother father fat had fat and that had fat was darkness i'll explain that in just a second this part is a little hard to uh interpret what she wrote in the book so just bear with me because these words are about to chew me up okay so part a says the secret doctrine in the stanzas given here occupies itself chiefs if not entirely with our solar system and especially with our planetary chain the seven suns therefore are the creators of the latter this teaching will be explained more fully hereafter now svadhatva the plastic essence that fills the universe is the root of all things and it is the buhistic concrete aspect of the abstraction called in the hindu philosophy mola prakriti it is the body of the soul in that which ether would be to akasa the latter being the informing principle of the former chinese mystics have made of it the synonym of being in the ekasaka shastra of Nagrahuna or the Longshi of China called the Chinese the Yi Shu Lu Kialun. It is said that the original word of you is being or sabhava and the substance giving substance to itself also explained by him as meaning without action or with action the nature which has no nature of its own sabhava from which sabhavat is composed of two words su fair handsome good sava self and bahava being or state of being now to me that seems like three words but anyways um so the sabhavat is the infinite and eternal substance that produces all while everything which is of its essence produces itself out of its own nature so it's made up of three words su which is good perfect fair handsome sav which is self and bahava being or state of being it is referring to the universal spirit the universal consciousness and this is just saying that everything was still one and the universal consciousness or spirit was in darkness okay now stanza two part six says these two are the germ and the germ is one the universe was still concealed in the divine thought and the divine bosom okay so it says the divine thought does not imply the idea of divine thinker the universe not only past present and future which is a human and finite idea expressed by the finite thought but in its totality the sat in untranslated term the absolute being with the past and future crystallized in the eternal present is that thought itself reflected in a secondary or manifest cause so brahma as the mysterium magnum of paracelsus is an absolute mystery to the human mind brahma the male female its aspect of anthropomorphic reflection is conceivable to the perceptions of blind faith though rejected by human intellect when it attains its majority hence the statement that during the prologue so to say of the drama of creation or the beginning of cosmic evolution the universe or the sun lies still concealed in the divine thought which has not yet penetrated into the bosom divine bosom the idea note well is at the root informs the origin of all allegories about the son of god born of immaculate virgin 
Now, this basically says that there's this the idea of Virgin Mary comes from this section of the stanza because they keep saying that the feminine aspect was still whole like a virgin before being split off or differentiated from the male principle. So the male masculine principle had not yet sent the ray of light to start the creation process at this stage. So the feminine principle had not yet ignited yet. Hence why they say the feminine principle was still a virgin. So the universe or whatever is being created was in this state of absolute being still, right? In the state of being and non-being at the same time. So there was no past or no future. Everything was in this now moment. So the cause is starting to happen here, right? That are going to lead to the effects. And to me, it feels like this is equivalent to when you're meditating and you haven't yet come up with a clear and organized thought pattern. So you're still thinking before acting, you're conscious and processing, but still deep in this meditative state. Like it's kind of like you're observing your thoughts as they come and the seeds are being planted, but they have not yet sprouted. So the germ is still one. It's being watered, but has not yet produced anything. So that's stanza two, y'all. So I feel like the difference between stanza one and stanza two is that in stanza two, the universe is kind of in this meditative state where it's able to observe its thoughts, but it cannot, it does not have any emotions or personality that go along with that thought. Okay. So it's kind of in this state of being and non-being at the same time where there is no sound, right? There is no motion. It's unmovable. It's also unknowable. The masculine and feminine principle had not separated yet, but here is where we first start talking about us being five parts of one being, right? We have the astral ray, right? We have the body, we have the soul, right? We have the unity and we have the living manifestation, right? So we are kind of these conduits in between the physical and the spiritual world and, or what we would consider to be reality and a false reality. And the only way for us to get out of this lap of illusion, right? And at this lower uh, consciousness level is for us to learn the truth, right? So it's our job to get knowledge and wisdom because that's going to help us lift the veil and also get access to our spiritual components as well so that we're able to see through this illusion that we experience in this material plane. And through understanding those five parts, we can apply the numerical value using the cabal, right? Using the Kabbalist techniques, which give us the number values of certain words. And it just so happened that the five components of us added together is Jehovah. So Jehovah is supposed to represent us being an absolute before the separation happens. We're still whole. We're still in this state of perfection, although um, creation is about to start. The germ is about to be planted. Now, I think the differentiation is important because that means that we have five aspects. That means that we're not just a physical being. We need to learn about the other aspects in order for us to really understand who we are and get out of this state of illusion so that we can know, know how we function, how we operate, what we have access to, what we can do and rise up out of this lower level of consciousness, which is the goal because our whole purpose of being here is to grow and to evolve and to learn. But it also helps us to understand this universal law of us having everything that we need inside of us before we even get here, right? Because they talked about the symbology of the lotus and what it means in a spiritual community, right? The lotus as a seed has literally a copy and paste of exactly what it's going to look like once it's planted and it grows and you know its roots go downward and its plant goes upwards and its stalk is up in the air right which represents those three components of us the the physical component the astral component and then us being the living manifestation that is living between these two realities false and actual reality 
So that's the end of stanza two. I hope that I was able to break this down in a digestible way. Next week, again, we're going to start with stanza three, which will probably be a two-part episode because it really is long. Actually, it might be a three-part episode. I'm still working on the second half, so I have to see how long it is because there's about 12 parts to stanza three, okay? So that's coming. I hope y'all love this episode. It really brought some stuff full circle for me and just helped me to understand where things come from. And I love when we have the cause of something, we're able to conceive it. Whereas when we don't, we're not able to conceive it. So it really helped to bring some clarity for me. So thank y'all for always coming to learn with me. Thank y'all for tapping in. I love y'all deep. I'll see y'all next week and happy healing friends. As far as resources, I'm sorry, I meant to mention I forgot to mention this as far as resources is the secret doctrine by Helena P. Blavatsky, Theosophy Wiki in the Book of Dizon. All right, y'all. See y'all next week.